Welcome to Stock in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm one of your co-hosts, Eitan, and I'm joined as always by Carl. Hey, Carl. Good evening. Hey, Eitan. You doing all right? I'm good. I think uh, I would say I'm doing good, and I'm also not surprised that Amazon acquired MGM. I guess to the surprise of no one. I'm also not surprised that this happened as I was editing last week's episode. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, we got a message from Kevin, our friend, that says the news really don't uh, match up with our recording schedule. It gives us more time to think about it, I think. It does. And, you know, we've brought this up multiple times. We flagged it last week as something that was rumored as maybe actually happening. We're not not on top of it. We're just... Our production schedule does not necessarily fit how quickly things are moving right now in the the market. (laughs) Yeah, and I think also it fits kind of what we do, right? We're not journalists. We analyze things, so... It's fine to take a couple of days to talk about it. Yes, we had to stew very long and hard about our our very developed (laughs) takes on this show. Exactly. Uh, So we'll talk a lot about Amazon and MGM and M&A in general. But before we get there, we have some news. Uh, The first one we wanted to touch on is a couple of weeks ago when the Warner Media spin-off came up. One question that we had was, what's going to happen with Jason Killar? Killar. And it turns out that he's staying as Warner Media CEO until at least mid-2022, which is the time where the these new companies supposed to get created, you know, go through mm-hmm. all of the regulatory steps and all of the things. And he sounds it sounds like he's staying. Reaction? Surprise? I'm surprised from a, a personal perspective that he's doing this, because if I had been kept out of the room, kept out of the loop like this, and just told, hey, you're getting spun off, sorry, mm-hmm. this other guy who own, who's in charge of the company that's the minority shareholder of the new company is in charge of the acquisition and the new company, I would take that as a sign to, to jump ship immediately. So I, I think it's a weird choice from a personal perspective, but they need a leader to run this in, in the transition. It doesn't sound like they're going to merge the two companies into one entity immediately, Makes sense from Warner's perspective. I just have no idea why he would want to stay. Yeah, I do wonder the same. I'm. It's one of those things where I'm so far of being in Jason Killar's shoes in terms of the responsibility that he has. Mm-hmm. And if you take outside the money, which I'm sure they paid him a ton to stay, I I would imagine there is a side of him that is like, I started HBO Max, and I'm not done. I want to mm-hmm. see it at least to that B one that could be still coming. So there might be something professionally that even is like, hey, it doesn't make sense. I'm very well regarded in the streaming world, maybe not the old Hollywood world. Like, I'll find something, but still saying, you know, like, I'm going to stick and do it. But who knows, right? It could be that he's actually pissed and he hates it. And they just gave him a ton of money to just say he was staying happily. I think that's a really good point. Money is probably a big object here. In 2020, he was paid $49 million in stock and about $3 million in cash as oh CEO God. of Warner Media. So I'm sure his comp this year and next year will be equally great. And I'm sure he'll get shares in the new company. I'm sure there's a pretty good set of golden handcuffs tying him to it. But mm-hmm. to your other point, I think it's also a tough time to be in the job market as someone who's been in the job market for a while in media it's it's hard but even at his level take a look at kevin meyer kevin meyer's at a terrible time 
landing and retaining a job post Disney, not his fault necessarily, but there are so many established teams and established leaders in all these spaces and everything's getting gobbled up and siloed that for someone of his stature to stay in media and keep playing in this world might just be difficult for him to find a place to land now. Whereas if he creates a runway for the next year, does some more good work with HBO Max, might be able to negotiate something or, or land something over the longer term. Yeah, because we talked two weeks ago when we talked about the deal of how he he might have borne some bridges with like the creative mm-hmm. side of Hollywood and how he was the first CEO of Hulu. He might have been more on the technology side, you know, this new world of Hollywood. And, you know, I also look back and it's like, it was kind of a bet to get him to manage all of Warner Media, right? He could have been asked to just manage HBO Max and not have decision-making over, you know, whatever, uh, creative decisions on Wonder Woman or mm. Justice League or on The Matrix 4. I have no idea. And maybe that's kind of where his future is. Because, yeah, even there aren't that many high-profile jobs to have in this world. So I do wonder if he te- maybe takes a step back and does something on his own. That's a good point. You're also speaking to just the dual competencies people need to have to work in this world now. You have to be a comp- You have to have competency in technology and in creativity. You can't just have one of those. You can hire people that have one of those. So you have Anne Sarnoff, who runs Warner Brothers now under under Kilar, and she runs that ship. She knows that ship, but she might not necessarily be able to connect the dots within her org to HBO Max at large. You need someone who has both mm-hmm. sides of their brain wired for that, and someone like him or Saslov or Meyer, I think, are working both sides of that. You need you need more of a corporate executive type rather than a creative type which that's the story that's as old as hollywood as old as in the american corporation is that the suits upstairs don't understand the real hard work that people make either on the technology (laughs) side or the creative side when ultimately they kind of need to in order to make any of this work yeah because i think if you ask me now you know if it was like a bet i would probably even say that the most likely scenario for him is staying and just Owning HBO Max. Mm-hmm. And it's like, just do this. Do this 100% of the time. Forget about... it's Everything is connected, right? But forget about studios. Forget about directors. Do HBO Max. Yeah. You have the... Probably our favorite streaming service today. It's awesome. Like, go go fight Disney and Netflix. Go do it. Right? We're now a pure content play. We don't have any of this other crap. You manage this while I take care of all of this other stuff. And now... I don't know if it's a step down, but you're right. He was still under Stanky mm-hmm. in AT&T. It's still weird. I'm sure there are egos, but like I do see a fit for him to just do that. So I don't know. We'll see. We will see. And HBO Max is, I think, the best streaming service from a content perspective. There's been there's debatable merit on the technical perspective. There was that right. outage with Mayor of Easttown last night and... Oh yeah. In general, the interface is garish and confusing sometimes, but the content speaks yeah. for itself. Like Netflix, I opened Netflix today for the first time in in months, probably. Well, since watching the Mitchells versus the Machines, because the new Bo Burnham yeah. special hit, so so I know that I need to go to Netflix to watch that. And even then, I had to dig to find it, even though it should be recommended based on my watch history. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
yeah, I think I would say I'm excited to see him hopefully make a year worth of decisions without being under AT&T. So he's still going to be under AT&T for the next year, but making decisions as if he was independent and say, you know, we ne we're never going to know if the botched Amazon and Roku, which is still, in my opinion, the biggest thing that held HBO Max and why it's still so mm -hmm. much so behind everyone else, how much it was because of other AT&T stuff. Right? If there was some weird way they negotiate, if there was some weird cloud deals, if there was some... I have no idea. But let's see. Let's, uh, let's see. I feel like I say, I say that every week. We are perpetually stuck in development on this. <laughs> yes. Whenever, whenever you were saying, I'm excited to see what he does with the year worth of decisions, I thought you were talking about Bo Burnham and him being inside for a year <laughs> making his special. Oh, sorry. No, sorry, killer, killer, I was saying killer. Are you excited to watch Bo Burnham's years, Year of Decisions, though? I am very excited. We should talk on that. Let's talk on that for a second. That's actually a pretty good segue. So, Bo Burnham, for all of you who haven't seen his specials, I want to hear how you first saw him. But when I moved into California, I moved out of my mother's place in Mexico, moved to the U.S. to live. I had a lot of, like, nights alone, right? Didn't know anyone. So I started getting more and more into, like, stand-up comedy. Netflix was kind of a very easy way to just get exposed to stuff. And he came up. And I, and I saw his then new special called Be Happy. I was blown away. I remember finishing and being like, I need to find everything by him. Mm -hmm. He had an older special called What? I just been blown away for his ability to both do comedy, do music do introspection, do... I don't know. There was just something about him. And then remember going and reading and him not officially saying, but basically saying, like, I'm not doing specials anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, that's over in 2016. Uh, but yeah, what was kind of your first... I want, like, as an American... Did he have anything else in the US in the comedy world before that? or? I know he was a YouTuber before he started having his specials and was never anything I was attracted to or, or knew about, really. My first exposure to him was... I think somebody, might have been Alex, actually, recommended I check out his specials because I was getting into Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and love mm. kind of the musical comedy elements of that. And she said, oh, you might like Bo Burnham. You should check him out. And that was probably about a year before eighth grade so it was before he was on mm -hmm. my radar as a creator in the directing capacity and he's just i mean he's just a naturally charismatic and funny guy he, he's a hilarious screen presence i love seeing him pop up and in anything I, I was i was texting friend of the show christina earlier <laughs> about promising young woman because she finally watched it and I said, you know, I could probably find it in my heart to forgive Bo Burnham because Bo Burnham's great. <laughs> <laughs> he's great. He's also great in The Big Sick. He is. A very secondary character, but he's great. And eighth grade, to this date, Ariella calls it the, more, the most cringy movie she's ever watched. Mm -hmm. She's been the most uncomfortable watching that movie and being afraid. And he, I think he has a way to describe the human experience, I think, that really I really relate to. So anyway, long story short, new special came out yesterday. I haven't seen it. Have you seen it? Have you checked it out? Seen about half of it. It's great so far. Okay, amazing. We, we'll probably talk about it another day, but the TLDR is all shot, edited, written, 
lights, everything done by him inside an apartment that if you watch the other specials, you recognize. Over a year and for all intents and purposes, amazing. So yeah, I can't I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to experience those things for the first time because those two specials that he has are one of my favorite things that I keep coming back to and continue to enjoy. For anyone that hasn't seen it that has like 20 minutes, go watch the last bit of Be Happy when he does like the Kanye West mm -hmm. introspection slash complain about his issues. It's just an incredible roller coaster of comedy, humanity, showmanship of uh, that I've ever seen. One of my favorite things ever, so very excited to watch it. On that note, I think we could work Burnham into a larger conversation about pandemic specials slash creativity during the pandemic. I'd love to... The Friends reunion? Yeah, we've got the Friends reunion. I would love to kind of compare and contrast his approach to the very ad hoc Borat approach to something mm -hmm. weird and manufactured like the Friends reunion or the 30 Rock reunion to something like Locked Down or that Michael Bay movie, which I refuse to watch. What is it? Songbird? All this stuff. That, I don't know. Like, we could talk about pandemic content and really get it, see what really captures it versus what is frustrating and annoying. I think that'd be a cool episode that we could do in a few weeks. I love it. That sounds great. This also feels like a, a good time to mention that this will not be happening next week or the week after mm -hmm. because I am getting married very soon. So what? You're getting married? I'm getting married. It's thrilling. You will be at the bachelor party and the wedding. <laughs> but you, what? the listener, unfortunately, awesome. will not be unless we could record something briefly. We will see. We're, we're going to try and make some content happen over the next two weeks. But... With that, just scheduling crazy. I'm starting a new job as well, so it's just got a lot of. I've got a lot of stuff going on over the next two weeks. Where recording's going to be crazy. Aton's also going to be along for the ride there, so we're going to try and get some content out. We will be back in about two weeks, but we're going to do a full episode today. We'll do some more stuff, and we'll keep you posted, and we'll get back to recording as soon as we possibly can. Yeah, we'll do something. You'll do something on your face. TBD, how it's going to look. We don't know. <laughs> Not TBD because it's a surprise. TBD because we don't know. You want to check in on Apple and Epic? Yeah, let's do that. What what have you heard? The last thing I heard was that Tim Cook had a kind of... He, he was the... Oh, what's the word in English? He testified? He was on the stand. Yes, yes. he testified. And that the, the trial is officially over, right? It's just the judge thinking for the next couple of months is that right that's my understanding of it but yeah tell me what what have you seen no yeah. real bombshells came out it's all epic on one side saying this is unfair here's how much money they make and apple on the other side saying it's a security risk to open up the platform we need money to keep this running overall it seems like the judge with her questioning is pretty favorable to epic's side though it also seems like she will probably award them. I mean, they're not looking for damages, but I think she's not as favorable as they might want her to be. Is that your read on the situation? Yeah, I think so. I think I think it's been in line to we both said when it just started how 
Epic was playing this weird game when they were speaking for other people because they had this very specific strategic game to play with Unreal Engine and standing for the small guys and whatever. Mm-hmm. But that things like Spotify or even Netflix had a way of a bigger like antitrust, core antitrust case because of Apple TV Plus and Apple Music that could actually break that whole, while at the same time, Netflix and Spotify depend way more on the App Store and iOS than Epic might. So maybe we didn't say it straight, but I, I didn't see anything groundbreaking coming from this. I would I would see something being like, you, hey, you have to tweak these things, or I don't even know it, if they can force them to change the number from 30% to 15 or something. I see more maybe about specific rules or specific things or specific types of apps. But uh, yeah, that's my read as well, that it's not, it's been very interesting. I've loved everything that has come out of Discovery. I've loved them having to take tangents to talk about naked bananas and characters about <laughs> Fortnite. But um, yeah, I, I think the the aura or the expectations have really been lowered over the past couple of weeks. I think you and I are in the same position that Epic's not the right plaintiff for mm-hmm, this case mm-hmm. to make a, a wide-reaching, lasting impact. They're not. They're trying to fancy themselves the little guy because Fortnite's this kind of new thing. But they've they're established, like you said, they run Unreal Engine, they license Unreal Engine, they have been around for a long time and been on Apple's stage at keynotes for decade a decade now. So it's it's difficult to say boohoo, Epic, you're getting hurt by this. I'm so sorry. But at the same time, they're also not the ones hurt as much as a Netflix or especially a Spotify. Mm-hmm. Spotify, I think, is the most interesting plaintiff as far as the big boys go and something more of like a class action with the small players or like that humble bundle thing that's mm-hmm. that's happening against Steam. I think that's a more interesting plaintiff and more convincing plaintiff than Epic is. They're They're just in this weird... Too small to make an impact, but also too large to be sympathetic. I see it exactly the same way. Couldn't have put it better myself. The one thing I am mad about, though, is... I can't remember which Apple executive it was. Maybe Federighi. There was an executive on the stand, stand complaining about how security on the Mac isn't up to Apple standards and how they really want to lock down the platform more. No. And... Just... Yeah. Make everything go through the Mac store? Yes, which they've already taken steps where if I download anything on my computer, I have to go th- click like three things in system preferences to allow something to install my on my computer that doesn't have a certificate from Apple. But it's my Mac. I want to make it run the way I want to make it run. And I'm okay with keeping a lockdown platform locked down. I'm not cool with taking an open Unix-based platform and making it something for incompetent children that can't protect themselves online, <laughs> which right. it's, this is, I, this is definitely like a 1% of Apple Mac users problem. I think most people are not going to notice that they can't install something, not to the app store, but it's very restrictive. And I hate the fact that the Mac might go that way. Yeah. Because also even for things like, I don't think I've ever installed an app directly from the Mac store. Like, even if when I download, like, actual, you know, software that I pay for, mm-hmm. I get it through their website. 
And I get yes, that in the background same. there is a certificate that Mac checks and they know it's right and that there is also available or whatever, but hopefully not. Hopefully not. I'm not going to jump to Windows from oh, over yeah, this, no. though. <laughs> We're not that crazy. Maybe I'll jump to Linux, but <laughs> probably not. <laughs> I know. That makes sense. On, on funner topics, I haven't gone to the movie theaters in a year, but I hear you went twice this weekend, and I want to hear about what you saw and the experience. And I haven't seen any of them. Cruella, Quiet Place, I've heard you went, but tell me about them. How, how was it? Uh, I think your listeners want your take. I wanted to talk about these two movies because, yes, I went to the movies this weekend, <laughs> which I've been going to the movies on and off the last few months. But it was exciting this weekend because the local movie theater in the small Oklahoma town I've been living in, the theater, which is a Regal, finally reopened. So it's oh, nice. exciting. This is the first weekend it's really been in full force. And I think that's in line with box office receipts, which we'll get to in, in a second. But last night I saw Quiet Place Part 2. I went to a 10 p.m. screening, which actually had about 10 people in it. A few oh. teenagers, a, another single guy, a couple, which was great. Everyone was respectful and quiet at the film. I was very happy to see that. Went and saw Cruella today, which probably had about 10 people in an afternoon matinee. I love matinees and late showings, so was just thrilled to be able to see both of those. And this was my parents' first time back in a theater since before the pandemic. That's interesting. I, We've never maybe... talked about the type of movie where you are in terms of times. I also love late night movies. It just feels like the right way to keep close the day, no other things to do. Yes. Okay, love it. This, we can talk more about that's it another day. But yeah, that's usually when I'm watching a movie at home, anyways, yeah. like nine or ten o'clock. And I love going at that time because it's the last thing of the day. You go home, mm -hmm. you go to bed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't interrupt your dinner schedule. It doesn't interrupt your life schedule. It's just an extra thing you can tack on to the end of the day. 100%. Same with matinees. Matinees are great, especially if you have time during the weekday or in the morning on a weekend. It means that your whole day isn't disrupted by it. But I think that's a... We approach movies as a thing we regularly do as opposed to... A special location a, of a, a Friday at 7 p.m. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. With the films, I liked both films. Neither is going to be my favorite this year. A Quiet Place definitely struck by how competent Krasinski is a, is a filmmaker. He knows exactly the levers to pull. He makes a terse thriller. It's pretty formulaic and clockwork and shows too many seams and too many Chekhov's guns, but it's fun. I like it. I love Mil Millicent Simmons. I loved her in the first Quiet Place. I really quite love her in Wonderstruck, which also has Oaks Fegley in it. So my my two, as Alex said, my my two child stars, Oaks Fegley and Millicent Simmons, are both in that. So <laughs> Oaks Hive and Simmons Squad are, are the two <laughs> fandoms I'm trying to start here. And then Cruella, I. I've been vocal, maybe not on here, but in general, about how I think it's so ridiculous people are pre performatively hating on Cruella. As expected, to me, it it's no worse than most of the live-action Disney remake crap we've been getting. Mm -hmm. It actually has something to say and, and tried to tell a new story and was inventive and didn't just feel like they hired Bill Condon to direct a worse version of Beauty and the Beast. It's... It's fun. It's fine. 
it's an hour too long. That's what well I've heard. acted. I was happy with it. Lots of needle drops that I like because it's all 70s rock needle drops. Mm-hmm. Little, a little less on the nose than a Snyder needle drop, but <laughs> barely less on the nose. Yeah, I think Rella, from everything that I've seen, even before reading, because I haven't read it that much online on purpose, it feels like one of those movies that I'm going to enjoy standalone, but I might dislike what it might cost in terms of the villain bursts or whatever that they may want to they might not connect, right? But Maleficent already came, Krell is already here, mm-hmm. and how they might just do that, and again, follow a formula for everyone. But I love Emma Stone. I really like her ever since... One of, one of the first things I saw with her was ECA, which I know is not necessarily mm-hmm. one of her first things, but she's been great. I'm a huge fan of La La Land, even things like, you know, Crazy Stupid Love and more side note things. Um, big fan, so can't, can't wait to see it. And Surprised you didn't name drop the movie by the Mexican director. Birdman? I have a weird relationship with Birdman, but she's she's good at it too. Tell me about this weird relationship. I I th- I, I should start. My ranking of Mexican directors is Guillermo del Toro, Cuaron, Iñárritu. Okay. I think Iñárritu is a little bit too much. Like when I think of Birdman and The Revenant, they are difficult movies. And I think Birdman, I really liked... Lubezki genius, like the cinematography, the experience. I think I think Inyaritu makes movies that subconsciously, and maybe you need to help me develop this thought, I don't feel like we're watching. That I come out and I'm like, I really like them, but I don't know under what setting I'm gonna wanna watch this again. You know, that I'm gonna say, Oh, I really feel like watching the Revenant. That is completely different from Birdman in terms of why I don't want to watch it. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of how I've seen I remember seeing it, really liking it, wanting it to win, and then never seeing it again. Subconsciously, right? Like, Which is yeah. not what happens with like The Shape of Water or Pan's Labyrinth or Roma or The Prisoner of Azkaban types of things mm-hmm. that I actually feel like, oh, there are some things I want to watch again there. there. Inuritu is the filmmaker I'm least familiar with of those three because I'm very familiar with Quaron and, and Del Toro and love both of those. I, Quaron's my guy because I just he's such a flashy stylist and I love his worlds that he builds and the immersion that he creates. Inuritu, I, I, can, I can see, I see your argument around that. It's almost like the whole Scorsese thing about superhero movies is more of a theme park ride than a movie. Inuritu's films are more of a, I don't know, immersive theater experience than a movie. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's different. I, I'll give him that. But have you watched yeah. Amores Perros? I've not. Okay, so Amores Perros is Inuritu's Ituama también from Cuaron. Mm-hmm. It's kind okay. of the first thing he did, put him on the map, one of the best Mexican produced movies ever, next to Ituama también. Same feeling. It's pretty visceral. I don't want to watch it. <laughs> it might be a very personal take. You should watch Amores Perros. That should be high on your list. That's kind of a, okay. in the pantheon of Mexican cinema, his first feature. So I will check it out. I have no beef with Inuritu. Don't care for The Revenant, but I will seek more of his stuff out for sure. Cool. Box office on these two films. 
is very exciting. Cruella pulled in 21.3 domestic this month, or this weekend. Quiet Place Part 2 pulled in 47.5 this weekend. So first weekend out for both of them. Wide, wide release. They're both in almost 4,000 theaters. These aren't the biggest numbers in the world, but compared to everything else we've seen over the last year, exciting to see numbers that look like they would be in the tail end of a top 10 in a, a normal pre-pandemic weekend. I'm a Disney stan, but this is a huge win for Disney. Like, yeah, that 26 million difference between A Quiet Place and Cruella, let's say they split half of that with the theater, right? So they make okay. around 13, 13 million in profit from that. If you divide that by the $30 that Cruella is also available on Premier Access, you know how many households had to buy Cruella to make up that difference? How many? 430,000. Yeah. That's 0.43% of Disney Plus subscribers. 0.43%. That's nothing. Like, them getting to that 100 million scale so quickly. And I think that's what happens, right? Next week they announce that Jungle Cruise is also going to be in Premier Access. There is no going back. We, we said, right, they were not, it wasn't going to be a one-time thing. Yeah. But after Black Widow, Jungle Cruise, and this, like, Jungle Cruise is late summer. This makes a lot of sense. Like, they're going to, they're, they can get both. Because I don't know, I don't know if these were, I, and I think they got more than 400,000 households to get to watch Disney Plus, but you you get when I used to do you know market segmentation mm-hmm. and willingness to pay, one of the problems with the theatrical experience is that there is one way there was only one way to acquire it, right? You needed to get people right. that were willing to go, that were willing to spend, that were willing to stop doing something, that wanted to do it on their own, blah blah. And when you try to segment, you know, discriminate you need to be able to offer something different so that people can choose. And I think here that, that, that of course, the sum of the parts have to be larger than if you only have theatrical. I think it gets them there. Whether it is because families of friends or friends can get together and be like, oh, we can watch it 10 people for 30 bucks and just order pizza or whatever. And suddenly mm-hmm. they're going to watch it. Or families or people that, oh, I'm not excited about Cruella and I'm a family of five or whatever. I don't want to go to movie theater. I'll just do it here. I think they're nailed. I think this is kind of the first actual numbers we can see, and that was my first takeaway. This seems like great for I Disney. Think, I think that's a good read, and I think that Disney uniquely benefits under this new structure because a lot of the films Disney is going to be pushing are more family-friendly or family-focused, and that's when the cost of premiere access is lower than taking your family to a theater, and the ease of that is lower, where something like A Quiet Place or Black Widow are going to be geared towards a more adult crowd in general, including one or two people that might go see it by themselves or, or as a couple, or in a group of friends that are going out for the night. And I think the Theatrical profit is the thing to chase there rather than this premiere access thing. So I think Disney is uniquely set up to benefit from that. And I think that's a a good take. I also wanted to bring up Jungle Cruise. I've been looking forward to this because I like Jamie 
go with Sarah. I like the cast. I like the ride. I finally watched the new trailer in front of these two movies and not really here for it. <laughs> it looks Jumanji. It looks right? just like cheap CG Jumanji mid-tier bad Disney. No, thank you. Yeah. And I like Jumanji because I think they leaned into that in a way that was very goofy. Yeah. I don't know for Jungle Cruise if it's going to... This looks work. a little too self-serious for the tone of what it should be, which is essentially Jumanji. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Oh, man. Premier Access, Profit Margins. Good stuff. I want to watch I wanna watch it, those in the movies, though. Right. Black Widow, big screen. We'll see. We'll see if I see Black Widow. I might hold off on that. We'll Great see cast. My, my language of my saying of, of the week. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Should we talk Amazon? We didn't run through the news as fast as we thought we were going to do it, but let's talk Amazon. Yeah. Jeff Bezos gets MGM for 8.5 billion. It was, you know, we when we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, it was around nine that was floated. Before before we get into the details, I've been spending the last week trying to see how this makes sense. Mm -hmm. And starting at a super, super high level, we talked with AT&T and the acquisition of Warner Brothers, how the most important thing of us acquisition is that 1 plus 1 needs to equal 3. If everything that Amazon was going to do or everything that MGM could do could be achieved by they just getting on an agreement and paying for things without actually owning, deals don't make sense. They end up on focusing some of like the redundancies and like it doesn't help. I can't see anything that Amazon can do with MGM that MGM couldn't do on its own. And I can't see anything that MGM couldn't do on its own that suddenly Amazon is going to be able to do. So that's where I am. And let's spend please the next half an hour or whatever talking about it. But what, like, where are you? I have no idea if you're like, this is awesome, this makes no sense, this could work. Where do you land? I'm right there with you. I would not spend this much money for this selection of content. I would not chase this. As Amazon, I think something we talked about two weeks ago now with the Warner Mm -hmm. Discovery deal is that... There is a gut reaction to these acquisitions where Mm -hmm. it's it's that old South Park joke, you know, where it's step one, you have your idea, step two, you don't, like, it's question mark, and step three, profit. It seems like (laughs) (laughs) there should be some good question marks that emerge from this that make it profitable. But ultimately, when you dig into this, where are the synergies that are going to create, like, more value here? MGM is not as high-functioning a studio in terms of development or in terms of their actual production facilities as name a major Hollywood studio at this point. Even Mm -hmm. a Lionsgate has more competencies here that make more sense than for Amazon. Amazon already has a pretty large development faculty at Amazon Studios and a lot of money that they're throwing at it. They're spending a billion on Lord of the Rings development right now and production. 
they're not even really getting Bond rights out of this. They're getting 50% control over the Bond franchise, and the Broccoli's still have creative input and control over this. And I think the Broccoli's have the option to walk away. So <laughs> the, the feather in the cap here really isn't that well secured either. It's a weird deal, way too overvalued. Yeah. Let's go. You mentioned a ton of awesome things of why it could make sense or some of the these God reactions, like you said, of why it could make sense. Let's, let's go through them. Like, I like that first one that you said. Amazon Prime, you know, they don't want to compete with Netflix and Disney+. Plus. Their service plays a completely different role within the Amazon world, right? So they have different expectations. But let's assume they want to make competent content, right? Mm-hmm. Amazon Studios, they have a studio. Maybe not very competent. Maisel is the biggest thing. Transparent, maybe. But a ton of stuff that it's like, even Jack Ryan. Eh. The Goldfinch. So, <laughs> But like, how much of even that or the big seek is the studio, right? I, and this is something right. I don't understand in general. It's, it's not a rhetorical question. I actually don't know. But there is this question of like, oh, maybe they're getting MGM because they need capabilities that they don't have and they want to learn. You just said it, right? MGM might not have them. I don't so, think they have them. If they did, yeah, they so, would be in much better shape than they are right now. Exactly. And that's, that's, I think that's where a ton of things break for me because I want to get your take on these studio capabilities. But the one that gets said the most, which is exactly to your point, is IP. That they say, oh, Amazon is going to unleash the IP. It's going to do all the spin offs and it's going to do everything. Why isn't MGM doing that? Like, what, what is Amazon going to do that MGM can't do? And then if somebody says money, it's like, why? Amazon could pay MGM to do any spin-off they want. There's no reason they need to own MGM for that to happen. And MGM, if MGM really wanted to spend X amount of money on a high-end Wizard of Oz movie or something, they could go to a bank and get that money to do it. The brand means enough there that they can do that without being under Amazon. Right? And even for content that is like, oh, they have this creative arm. The handles made tail is MGM's and it's in Hulu. Who would just pay them for it? I, I, from, even from that IP side, like, sorry, I spoke too much about those two points, like content development capabilities and IP. Is there anything? Yeah. What do you see? I want to dig into something kind of buried in your point here, which is Amazon Prime as a product. Let's do it. I think Prime is a product that Amazon is a company has built themselves around Prime. The majority of American households have a Prime subscription or access to a Prime subscription. And it was built on the back of two-day free shipping. And then you had all of these other perks, Prime Video chief among them, that you got out of being a Prime subscriber. But at this point, there's so much competition for the other perks that you get from Prime that I don't think people are necessarily swayed to get prime for that. And I think that that's artificially or that is directly going to inflate prime more heavily. And this is completely, maybe just I'm completely off here, but based on my sentiment around Amazon and prime and others that I've, I've I'm hearing about and talking to people and everything, I think, don't necessarily go to Amazon first to shop anymore for certain goods because 
They don't necessarily have the best prices. They have a counterfeiting problem. Their shipping Mm -hmm. isn't as good as it used to be because their logistics are too strained. And honestly, their their business practices are, are shady enough sometimes that I'm going to go to a directly to a seller or to a target or something over them. And I think that directly hurts the prime product and means that they should probably debundle it to de-risk some of these business units if they really want people to be subscribing to prime video or to shipping or whatnot. It doesn't make sense as a fully bundled product anymore to me. One, yeah. And it's one of those things where in, in my free business school role, professional life, I worked in management consultants mm-hmm. and at Google where I experienced firsthand how you see these companies and you think they have their stuff figured out. They know exactly what they're doing. They have this magic algorithm that says, oh yeah, this makes a ton of sense and that's why they do it. And then suddenly you look into the beast and you realize that a ton of stuff happens because of gravity, right? And to your point, I'm, I'm very thoughtful of my limitations. I have worked with Amazon. I haven't talked with anyone at Amazon. Prime, for all intents and purposes, right? Very successful. It's in all of the households. Yes. But you know how I, I tend to bring it back to the human emotions, mm-hmm. everything in business? And I think we've talked about how... I don't remember where it's from. I wish I could quote it. Humans are very bad at estimating and realizing why they were successful or unsuccessful. Yeah. We underestimate the unknown unknowns and we tend to put way too value, too much value in the things that we think made sense. When I go to Prime and I see the 75,000 things that they offer me and I use one... Again, I'm sure they have a very good model that says what amount of households use which one and the amount of value that makes sense and how much cost we can have in each one. But exactly what you said is what worries me. Is that then so they suddenly say, oh, we spent $9 billion for MGM. We're going to have Creed and Rocky and some of the Bond movies there. And now we're going to be able to increase Prime to 150 I do see a point where it breaks, yeah. right? Where it's like... It's too inflated. I use three of these things. You're adding things that are not actually adding value for me. I'm going to start looking for alternatives. And there is definitely a risk on, on, on some of these. Even for these things, right? Let's say they spend whatever amount of just licensing this. Even then, if they increase it to 150, it would be like, why? Yeah. And then now it's like, is it just because is the Occam's Racer, we have a ton of cash? And we're bad at doing movies. They have movies. Let's just get movies. Seems too simplistic. It really does. And I I think you're right that at a certain point, the value you receive from Prime, if you're not making use of all of these things that you subscribe for it, then you're going to deprioritize that as something you get value from. And that's why they're pushing Prime Video. They're pushing the Whole Foods discounts and whatnot. But... It's there's got to be a, a limit, and Amazon's an interesting company because, as much as they are a important and innovative company in a lot of respects, they're also like worse than thousands Microsoft as far as stodginess and the like inability to transform their business. A lot of times, mm. look at their UI UX; they are clinging to a barely post web 2.0 responsive interface that's very text-based very ugly because within the company jeff bezos is afraid of changing anything radically because it might cause customer confusion and instead for any modern millennial or zoomer that's using this website it's impossible to navigate because it's not responsive at all to what you need to need it to do terrible interfaces 
I think also the biggest, yeah, the, again, <laughs> they have a ton of very smart people. They do. Hundreds of thousands Great of very smart people. Great businesses, world-class yeah, businesses. Like, and I'm sure they're thinking about it, but this is the first year that I thought about not resubscribing to Prime. Yeah. If it continues going up, it's going to reach my very personal uh, break-even point of, well, it's getting to, you know, 15 orders worth of shipping. Yeah. I don't know if I order 15 things in a year. Right? So it's like, well, if it's $100, it's fine. If it's 120 maybe. If it gets to 150 and what they added was MGM that I can still rent and there aren't movies that I'm actually like, oh my God. It might actually be value-destroying, which again, it's one of the issues of M&A. If you can get all of the positives by just making deals with MGM or whoever, suddenly you're taking off a ton of organizational, business, legal, focus, kind of debt and gravity. That it's just... I'm also angry at Jeff Bezos. <laughs> have you heard about the human lander contract with NASA? Yes, I have. You want to fill us in? <laughs> The 10 second, the TLDR is that NASA is looking to go back to the moon with Artemis. And a lot of the things, even though it doesn't look like, also with the original space program, was built through uh, contractors. Mm -hmm. So they opened a contract for the section of the system that is going to bring humans from a station that they're going to have around the moon into the moon. It was called the Human Lander System, HLS. And they say they wanted to select two. And they had like a very specific rubric, like a NASA government-specific rubric. And Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos' company, applied next to SpaceX, next to Boeing, next to a couple of things. And they only selected SpaceX. And they said, hey, these are the only persons that, you know, actually managed all of the points that we asked for. And they were the cheapest by like $10 billion. Mm -hmm. And now Jeff Bezos and Blue Origins are like making all of this dust because of they were super expensive and they didn't follow the rules. And now they're being terrible about it and asking Congress to, like, step into it and wait. And it's like, you're fighting for these things and then you're spending that amount of money in MGM. It's just like, I don't know. Right. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Anyway, it's a tangent. but It's in my mind. It is very interesting to hold in your mind. This is the, the Elon Musk problem as well. The fact that one person has controlling interests in many different companies that are not technically owned by each other mm -hmm. or related to each other. Right. But it is difficult to look at Amazon, Blue Origin, and the Washington Post as separate business ventures. Right. From a rational perspective. Yeah. Because they are, even if not directly, well, they are directly connected, but I mean... SpaceX launched a rocket with a Tesla in it. Right, exactly. Right? And it's like, yeah. It's going to be interesting to watch Bezos. Bezos steps down in July, right? From CEO? I think so. Yeah. So yeah. he's going to be still executive chairman. So he will be, it'll be like Iger and Chapek, where Bezos is still calling a lot of shots in, in, in the rooms, but he's running it less day to day. I want to stay on this point about. Amazon Studios business and go back a little bit in time. So in preparation for this, I was looking for this article I read probably 2018, 2019 about the cost per first click or 
the customer mm-hmm. acquisition cost for Amazon's customers that were subscribing to Prime and then going to Prime Video and then clicking on a piece of content. So this mm-hmm. is a metric most streaming services use. They like to look at what you are clicking on first so they know why you subscribe to something. But then they also are dividing the amount they spent on that as a customer acquisition number to kind of figure out how much it costs to buy you as, as a customer. I could not find this article anywhere because it was based on leaked numbers and every Google, every phrase I tried to Google or even use like DuckDuckGo or anything, they were all too vague to actually surface this. But the numbers, if I recall correctly, were pretty atrocious. So you had the Grand Tour on one side, which is unscripted, was fairly cheap to produce and watched by a lot of people because a lot of people love Top Gear. Mm-hmm. Even the the customer acquisition cost there was in the low hundreds of dollars to acquire those customers, which, as we've discussed, Prime has a lot of other benefits. You're not just subscribing to Prime to Prime Video at this point, unless you're in a territory where it's deep, it's debundled. Like, yeah, like, Europe like Mexico in Mexico. Yeah, but for most Mozart in the Jungle, it was like seven thousand dollars to acquire a customer with that show. <laughs> These are atrocious numbers from a development for streaming perspective. Terrible, yeah. And it's the you. He's one of this is one of the areas I love our podcast and this world. I mean, I guess it's true in a lot of places, but it's really impossible to have the counterfactual of if Amazon didn't have these Amazon Studios, or let's say they had Prime Video, but they didn't have Amazon Studios. Everything was licensed. How much value they would lose in terms of people subscribing or resubscribing? And I would imagine it's pretty low. He's definitely the one that I go the least to. Huge Maisel fan. Again, they are not looking for me to replace Netflix with Prime. But I think if you say, hey, you need to stop using Amazon Prime and subscribe for a month to do Maisel, you know, use a VPN, get it through Mexico because it's unbundled. Super, super, super doable. It is. And I think this dovetails into something that at least film Twitter, which is a obscure and and crazy part of, of the ecosystem that you can't base anything off of. But I think a lot of people are worried of with Amazon uniquely pulling things from theatrical and just putting all of this old MGM content directly on streaming, using it as a, as a library play. And that's interesting because I think Amazon is uniquely, of all the big players right now, they are uniquely positioned and incentivized to push people towards Prime Video as a product over anything else. So I I could see that as a, as a legitimate fear, even though I think it should be a fear across the board. Yeah, I think so. I think also connected to that, the one area where I could see it making a lot of sense is Amazon makes a ton of money from channels, mm-hmm. right? Selling HBO Max and Disney Plus and whatever through Amazon. And then suddenly if you have a little bit more in Amazon Prime, you're more likely to subscribe to those things in Amazon Prime, which is also a similar bit to an Apple TV Plus. Roku, of course, is the same, but they, they play a little bit of a different game. But I just don't see that. I I wanna. I just thought of something. What's your Amazon Prime is also very different because it's annual, 
Yes. Right? In a ton of all of these other things, you can subscribe monthly to watch everything you want to see. Right? HBO Go. HBO Now had, of course, that crazy spike mm-hmm. with the last season of Game of Thrones. But as I just think about it, if you are smaller, let's say you this Maisel was in Paramount+. Plus. I was subscribed to Paramount Plus for a month to watch Maisel. Yeah. If I decide to drop Prime, I'm not subscribing to Prime to watch Maisel. Because I need to pay for a year. So I'm not even getting there to see what else they have. Right. Well, for a monthly, I might be willing to do that and then see what everything is there. So I feel like that's also another one where Amazon as an acquiring uh, you know, parent company of a content perspective makes, makes it also... It's suddenly less accessible. You said, right? A ton of households in the US have Prime. But if they do hit reach point when people start to churn a little bit, it's more difficult to win them suddenly. More than it would be for someone that has a monthly option. That's a great point. These other businesses are built upon an assumption of churn. Whereas Amazon at this point, if you don't have Prime and you're an American, there is a reason that you probably don't have prime a financial reason a value reason the acquisition activation point i think is much higher especially with an annual price point but they they do have a monthly price point that's higher i think it's ends up being oh, okay. like 15 well, months a month 15 dollars a month now instead of 10 dollars but still it's significantly higher where a rational consumer would probably just pay for the the annual fee do annual but I do think that that is a good point, that it's difficult to reacquire the customer if they've left Prime. So a lot of the strategies they're chasing right now are to make sure that you're maximizing your Prime utility so that you are remaining yeah, a subscriber rather than turning out at the one-year decision point. Yeah. Which I don't know if Bond movies are going to do for me. They're not. I already have a lot of the ones I love on Blu-ray anyway, which, again, that's not a normal, rational consumer here. (laughs) That's Carl. It's Carl. You want to talk Bond? I think that's an interesting point that has been... Yeah, a ton of people have said, like, oh, they're acquiring Bond. And uh, you mentioned on your opening remarks that they actually only control 50% of Bond, so let's talk Bond. I wish I was better versed in Bond rights. I want to be more versed in that i've looked it up over the years it's fascinating we've talked on this show about the casino royale having an insane product placement thing with all its sony products because that sony was running the mgm distribution at the time the Mm -hmm. interesting thing with bond is it's owned by this family the broccoli family so albert broccoli ran it for years and then his daughter barbara runs it now you always see Broccoli and Eon Productions, which is their production company, in front over the like salacious, sexy Bond intros. And they are the creative drivers. They ultimately have say in what who gets cast in Bond, what direction they move in. A lot of people have said that the reason that Bond has taken a while to modernize and how... Like, Craig has been the first Bond to be a little less chauvinistic, a little more vulnerable. 
it's fascinating. And they're still going to have control here. They're not going to relinquish control, and I don't blame them. They're 20-something movies deep, 40 years deep. It's a great business. It's a fun thing to own. I it's it's just interesting that this one massive franchise and piece of IP is not fully owned by a corporation that's a, like a Disney scale. Yeah, part of me when I was learning about this, I, I remember knowing but reading more about it. My first reaction was this is so weird. But actually after thinking about it, it's like this is actually not that weird, no, right? It's crazy that there aren't that many other people that have rights to these things. And again, I guess it just talks about the last decades and how everything has been gobbled up by other companies, but it is kind of interesting. I think we talked about maybe one of our first episodes, right? Of This could be Craig's last Bond. Who could we see as the next one? I said Idris Elba or Emily Blunt. And I think this came up of how slow Bond's development and or modernizing has been, and them being one of the reasons why that might happen. It might be taking so long. It was a lot easier to buy rights to a popular book series or random book series in the 60s than it is today. As these books were coming out that Fleming wrote, they were new, exciting. Somebody could just go buy the rights to them instead of now where you have Bertelsmann controlling the majority of publishing and therefore it's a direct pipeline to a lot of contracts they already have. The rights to to new IP are rapidly scooped up through this this lack of independent publishing, and the rights to old IP. So many people have already staked claims through previous adaptations of old IP, or the lack of the public domain existing for most of the twentieth century. That it's just it's a weird fluke where this this one family still owns the rights to something popular. And it hasn't been purchased in wholesale from someone else. It's just strange. Yeah, and have you seen... I didn't check, but did the previous bonds have any licensing deals that might take a while to go to Amazon? I would imagine everything new goes somewhere, but I think I've seen some things. Like, I remember trying to find everything in line and not everything was in line anywhere. It's so tricky to understand who owns what with respect to MGM because so much of the film content's been sold or licensed out long-term over the years. I wish there was a resource for it. I'm not sure. I believe Amazon Prime already had a lot of these rights anyway. Right, I was going to say, they had a lot, yeah. So it, it'll be interesting to see how it changes. But as for right now, I don't see there being an, a bond access gap or Amazon even radically pushing the direction of Bond in a different direction, in a different way. I also don't think Amazon has the ability to just say, we're making a Bond TV show right now, even though that would be totally in line with the standard D2C content distribution model these days. I think the Broccoli's have to approve everything related to Fleming's work. Hmm. Yeah. I'm just reading here. Apparently they're all available on Pluto. They're all available on Tubi. The pre-1995 were available in Amazon Prime and Hulu, but as of January 2021, they left. So now you can actually rent them. And uh, yeah, that's... How do you see them 
I don't want to take us away from Bond, so feel free to take us back. But another thing we think with Amazon is that they have both Amazon Prime and IMDb TV. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about that we're believing Avo and you know the IMDb TVs and the Roku channels of the world playing a bigger role. This feels premium. This feels like most of the high-end stuff are going to go to Prime. Do you see any of these playing in Amazon, in IMDb TV? Because that's something that also usually I feel like not a lot of people talk about, but we are on the record as being bullish on. How do you see that play in? And feel free to take it back to Bond if you have something else there. I see older library content definitely going to IMDb TV. Maybe both places, but IMDb TV is a customer acquisition play and revenue play for people that aren't necessarily Prime Video subscribers. It also uniquely fits a demographic that's not the standard Prime demographic or SVOD demographic, namely older individuals who still might have a cable package or are recent cord cutters that are comfortable, that prefer an electronic programming guide for how they find content and view content. And they also are comfortable with having an ad-based experience in exchange for watching whatever they want. And Bond is perfect for an older demographic because it's a legacy storied franchise that a lot of people love. Beyond that, MGM has a lot of this content as well. That's older film library content or TV library content. I think it's a good way of inflating both Prime Video with more premium MGM content and IMDb TV with less premium content or the occasional premium thing rotated in for a bit. That makes sense. Oh, it really has to take off. It's taking a while <laughs> for Avo and IMDb TV. It has, and I just... It's interesting that they haven't pushed IMDb TV more across their interfaces. They don't pr- push Prime Video that much across their interfaces either. It's a different interface and it's kind of difficult to get to at first glance from the standard amazon.com. I was going to say that's that's actually another thing connected to your UX point. Amazon Prime is just difficult to find. I never know where to start. I never know to realize if I'm renting it or watching it on Prime and yeah. And half the time you search a specific piece of content and it's difficult to determine if it's free with Prime, if it's free with a Prime channel that you have to pay extra for if it's tvod or or whatnot they always push you towards a a product that amazon makes money off of whether it's prime or tvod or channels but it's difficult to find and it's a confusing interface to type in name a show that isn't a prime original and then mm-hmm. type that in and you get a prime video option you get an advertiser option and you get a buy a used copy of this on DVD option. (laughs) It's difficult to discern how I watch something, whereas every other D2C streaming platform, there's a front page and a search bar that only takes you to that. Yeah, a send to to Carl on DVD option. And I think that's another layer that Amazon has that it's owed to be in inside their worlds and their incentives and business model of, there is a world, right, where if a user comes in and they see, let's not say Bond, or a random MGM movie, mm-hmm. and they have all of these options to watch, Prime, IMDb, TV, order it physically, or something else, there is one of those that provides the biggest ROI for them, right? right. Over the others. 
And then how are they going to decide to show those options to try to funnel you towards that? And then what if that option is physical media, right? It's actually yeah. not streaming in Amazon Prime or something. It's like, I'm going to make more money if you pay me 20 bucks for a Bond IMDb uh, Blu-ray than you even renting it, seeing it with ads on IMDb TV, or even subscribing to Amazon Prime. Right. You look at a wholesale, what they're making wholesale off of a, a piece of physical media, they're probably making anywhere from 50 cents to $2, just completely pulling that number out of nowhere. But that 50 cents to $2 is, is probably more than they're... It's a bigger cash infusion than they're going to get from a lot of customers for that product. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It's it's odd. But then they also have <laughs> the logistical cost of it. How much is it actually cost to ship me in, in their supply chain or whatnot? Like, I think right, the, the virtual good, yeah. Amazon owns all aspects of getting the virtual good to me. It probably is still cheaper for them to push me towards the TVOD or Prime Video option. But there has to be a, a certain point where it is advantageous for that. I don't know what that is. Right. Or just increase the price, right? Instead of sending the Blu-ray for 22, sell it for 25. And then, anyway. Yeah, they're also uniquely... Again, every of these, every one of these companies is different, but they do have more of these interdependencies and kind of hands in different cookie jars that they might want to send people towards, which is fascinating. Let's pivot now away from Amazon and into a quick general M&A discussion. So okay. in the last month, we've seen Warner Discovery. We've seen this Amazon MGM deal. Over the last few years, we've seen a lot of movement. You have Disney Fox. You have AT&T Warner. You have Viacom buying things. NBC buying things. Where do you see the future of media M&A going right now? It's a good question. I'm of two minds, which are kind of contradictory. So I still have to decide which one I believe the most. One is something that has been shown by these two last ones this past couple of weeks. Have been, it's that content is kind of king, mm -hmm. right? Even if Amazon, a non-content company, is acquiring it, they they are probably gonna treat MGM and its content in the same way that a Netflix could would have, right? In terms of, I want to create more, I want to put it in Prime. The the what it drives in business results is of course very different, but how you treat that part is different. So there are some ideas that come to mind on that world, and then there is this other side of my brain that says the pendulum is going way too far to this, and it's trying it's it's being. Uh, like everything is too similar. Everyone is still thinking of content the same way. Nobody's thinking around social media or gaming or VR or AR or this mm -hmm. tangential of where everything is going. So on the first one, there are two companies that everyone has said they kind of look, uh, you know, lonely. One is NBC Universal and the other one is Viacom CVS mm -hmm. that suddenly lack kind of the the scale to compete versus a Netflix, a Disney, or even a Warner Media Discovery. I I had things noted down last week when we said we were going to talk about this, and then freaking Alex Sherman from CNBC had very similar ones to the ones that I had, so now it's going to come through him. But one that people keep saying about 
Warner Media is that I actually see NBC Universal going with something like a Lionsgate mm-hmm. of everyone right now. Warner Media Discovery have a premium channel that is HBO, and uh, Viacom CBS has also a premium world that it's Showtime. NBC Universal doesn't have that. Yeah. NBC Universal is kind of missing on that top end. And Lionsgate has both stars that is getting too close to like 10 million subscribers, which is interesting. And that could be one. And then also Lionsgate, which I feel like only you and I have talked about, has the theme park side of the world of Peter's Bakery <laughs> and John Wick shoot around. They're like, I see a ton of stuff that Lionsgate has that is kind of very popularish in the same way that uh-huh. NBC Universal is. And then he also kind of has Viacom CBS and Warner Media combining. Something that I hadn't thought about is that Warner Media suddenly is in a very interesting position with Discovery because they don't have a broadcast channel. So in the US, a broadcast channel, you know, anything that is available with an antenna, mm-hmm. ABC, CBS, blah, blah. And Warner Media and Discovery doesn't have that. So that kind of makes it potentially easier to acquire from a uh regulatory perspective yeah so that could be two ways that these two companies could actually get together so warner media and viacom and nbc universal with like a Lionsgate or one of these it could have been an mgm but not anymore so those are two things of my first one but i've talked for a long time where do you where do you land on this content heavy world i think Lionsgate. MGM and AMC are mm. were all similarly similarly placed in the market. Where AMC, not the movie theater, the correct networks. the networks. Yeah, they all had some level of super premium content. So Lionsgate has a lot of franchises. They have so Lionsgate has Hunger Games, Twilight. They had La La Land. They have John Wick. They have some big stuff, more so than modern MGM did. Right. AMC has a pretty healthy business. They have the streaming business through AMC Plus. They had they had Mad Men and Breaking Bad. They had The Walking Dead. The, the Bloom's a bit off the rose on that, and AMC Plus is leaning heavily on that. But there's content assets in all of these that make sense from a I want to acquire content perspective which is definitely mm-hmm. i think what the mgm deal was amc and, and lionsgate both also have that d2c competency that i think i see your point around nbc universal not necessarily having a premium play but i think peacock definitely could get there and they could put more premium content on there i don't think they need to acquire one of these two and same with viacom cbs i don't think they need to acquire one of these two to get the streaming competency they Mm. already have that in some regard but from a content play i think i agree with your assessment that something of this size would make sense and overlap well there yeah and it will probably be around half the size of mgm yeah even talking about lionsgate like you said it's more modern it feels like a better deal for amazon did they just was bond yours too shiny Sorry, I'm bringing us back to Amazon. Yeah. Like some of this stuff, like could make more sense. I think Bond and the old library were just both too shiny, but I think if I had the same amount of money to acquire James Bond or 
Twilight Hunger Games John Wick, I would spend the money on the other three combined. Right, yeah. And Mad Men Orange is a New Black instead of Handmaid's Sale, whenever the licensing deals end yes. in like a decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Great TV content, too. Good point. Yeah. The one that I don't see happening, and I think we both talk, we both agree on this because we talked about them a couple of weeks ago, is Sony. I don't see anyone prying Sony away from Sony. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're doing a good job. Their animation studio is killing it. They have the gaming side. I don't see why Sony would be interested in selling. I don't either. I think to that point as well, there's a lot of great IP locked up in video games. Sony owns a lot of that IP, like The Last of Us. There's an HBO show coming. Microsoft owns a lot of the rest of it. Like Halo, you have Nintendo around there as well. Nintendo's always been bandied around as an interesting acquisition for an Apple or someone where it's a video game company that's not as... It's so purpose-driven in its mission as a company. I was going to say, yeah. But overall, I think video games... Video games for media IP is is just a trickier proposition because you have Nintendo over here with its weird stuff that could be valuable, that could be interesting. But the other two are, I think, too big and too uninterested in in selling just to get to be part of a, a media conglomerate. Yeah. And to your point of Nintendo and Sony, and this is completely... I don't know anything about, I don't know nearly as much as I would like to even about like Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. But when I think of Nintendo and Studio Ghibli, they give me kind of very similar vibes. You mentioned of like this mission driven, I don't think Studio Ghibli is owned by Warner, right? They just have a distribution deal. Correct. But they seem to be these companies that would be like, I want to stay on my own. I want to control my destiny. I know what I'm doing. And they seem to go a little bit against this Western, especially very American Everything has to be maximized all the way, all the top. They they kind of know what they do and they are very good at it. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I don't know if it's a culture thing. I don't know if they just both happen to be Japanese. But, I mean, Sony also. But, yeah, that's those. I hadn't thought about those two. On this theme of things that aren't necessarily film and TV that could be acquired for that reason... I think something that would be interesting is more of a consumer products company like a Hasbro. Okay. Hasbro currently has deals with Paramount and Discovery for a lot of stuff. They so they own Transformers, G.I. Joe, Power Rangers, they own Barbie, Monopoly, Twister, Nerf, My Little Pony. A ton of just random good brands that all have you could see the media potential for them. We've talking about we've we've talked about the battleship deal that went alongside Transformers and all the other board games and stuff. Like they're making media moves, and I think a certain company like a Warner Brothers or a Disney or someone that has a consumer products bent, there could be some synergies there that make sense. Where bringing it in, simplifying the licenses. I already have best-in-class consumer products on both sides. It's just it's a nice marriage. And I think the content IP is valuable enough mm-hmm. that that could make sense. I think there's a, a lot more to be gained from both sides in a transaction like that than a video game transaction, per se. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you were saying, I started thinking of Lego. But I think they're a little it's bit very different. Very similar. Be- yeah. Because Lego doesn't have inherent IP. 
right? Like the Lego movies came out of, you know, these guys' minds. It wasn't because right. there was an inherent story or person or brand. But they, they, it's very similar actually to Nintendo and Ghibli of like, they know exactly what they do and they're very happy to play with everyone in different places. They license backwards things to them for them to build sets. And it's just one of those like toy, traditional toy companies that have really flourished. Hasbro, my biggest thing with that is who is going to want to take on their toy competency. And then my mind would go to say it makes sense to continue licensing it. It does. Yeah, to your point, but that's an interesting one. I think the only other major vertical that we haven't touched on here would be theater chains. Mm-hmm. Do you think the time is right for a theater chain acquisition by any major studio, or it's a bit off? Uh, that timing word has so many different <laughs> <laughs> meanings, like AMC before Reddit got into it. Mm-hmm. Could have been good timing. Uh, COVID and being down on the dump could have been good timing, but also the studios were down. I think we've talked about like the the specific plays they play, the specific role they play in the value chain, and how different a huge theater chain capability, like running capability, implies. That I don't see it happening. I don't know. I haven't thought about like to the point that we've touched throughout this episode of licensing licensing or getting to these deals instead of owning them. Like, what could Disney want to do with any of these that they couldn't just go and say, hey, Cinemark, I want to take, I'm going to choose 15 Cinemarks and I want to take over two of your, uh, whatever, uh, screenings, how are they called, screens, Mm -hmm. halls, whatever, and I'm going to do whatever I would do with them, just I'll do it in a licensing deal. Right, or Netflix saying, no, I want to be in theaters because I want to do Oscars. They already do that. And I don't see where the synergy could come from outside of very specific, oh, yeah, I own, you know, Disney owns the Capitan, Netflix buys whatever, somebody buys three of the uh, art lights. It just seems to be a real estate business yeah. <laughs> as opposed to a content business. So, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I think That's I'm with question. you there right now. I think the only two companies where it makes sense to acquire a theater chain would be, okay, th- three companies: NBC Universal, Disney, and Amazon. And, and the first two because of theme parks, and the third one because of logistics. Logistics and home. Trying to guess. Yes. Okay. They all have some level of either retail real estate or hospitality. Mm-hmm. I guess on that note, Apple could also be a stretch because the Apple store is such a, a well-run retail business, but that's, I think, a stretch. And their hospitality competencies are much more around customer obsession versus food and beverage right. or whatnot. But I think there's overlap there where it makes sense and it, it is a vertical integration play. And those three companies also have a large enough library where they would see a return on being able to reap 100% of the revenue rather than 50% of the revenue or whatever they're able to negotiate up in the, in the coming years. But even then I think it is too close to the pandemic, too close to these things collapsing. And these businesses I think need to be in a better shape around delivering best in class hospitality 
and experiences before someone should touch them. You don't want to buy the rundown mall theater I just was at for the yeah. last two days. And it's Disney funny. doesn't want to touch that because they already had a thousand rundown mall stores that they couldn't figure out what to do with. Yeah, they would. And even then, they would, right, they would start with two or yes. three. Yeah. And then you just will build them and try it and test them. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. If you put a... I don't like violent. Uh, what's a better metaphor that if you put a gun to my head? Is there one? It's like, you know, instead of killing a bird with two... Kill two uh-huh. birds with one, one stone, is feed two rabbits with one carrot. What's the nice version of put a gun to my head? Is there any? If you made me choose... <laughs> yes, there we go. For the sake of the I'm, I'm just sitting here in silence because I cannot think of a less violent metaphor on the spot. Yeah, right. If you take away the three things that you mentioned, uh, Lionsgate, MEMC, and uh, Viacom or Warner Media, whatever side you want to do, what is most likely to happen in terms of M&A? I see way more deals like the Disney BAM media. Mm-hmm. You know, type of like, we're going to shore up the competencies that they need that we need so it's going to be on technology investments they're going to be on distribution in terms of like compression or speed or quality or like things like this and then advertising like if able is going to rise just the other day i saw my first ad in hulu that was it had a qr code yeah and i was like yeah exactly it can't be that we're making ads the same way that we've done it forever Uh i get that now there is addressable target and we know who you are so they can choose which ad to show instead of just showing an m&m ad to everyone watching the super bowl like there is a ton of stuff available there that for able i feel like that's going to be capabilities that each company is going to want to try to get specific about so yeah it's not the fancy stock in development who's going to buy lionsgate Mm -hmm. or who's going to buy warner media discovery but I do see a lot of movement happening there sooner rather than later. Uh, I think that transition to advertising and addressable has taken way too long. So I see things there. I think that's something that we can do better about on this podcast is keeping track of the unsexy deals, like the AT&T video spin out with the DirecTV mm-hmm. and ads business. I do agree that that's where the movement makes the most sense. I think everyone is... I'm probably overestimating the strategy capabilities of most of these teams, but (laughs) a smart team would realize that there is going to be an SVOD fatigue and that you probably are not going to be everyone's first pick of SVOD. Mm -hmm. Even a Netflix in a two-year time horizon is probably not going to be everyone's top three pick. Just Mm -hmm. the content is becoming so siloed. The access is becoming so difficult that... I think you need to deprioritize your focus on acquiring customers or even stopping them from churning out based on the content that's available and what they're looking for, and instead focusing on making the most money off of the customers you do have. Mm -hmm. So making money off of getting better targeted ad experiences so you can command higher CPMs or inject more relevant ads that result in better engagement for you. Or, to your point about BAMTech, making your content delivery network best in class and efficient so that you're keeping your operating costs lower and reaping higher profit off of every customer. I think that's what we do in a post-SVOD is king world. 
Right. Yeah, once all of this content stuff gets distributed and it's a commodity, you know, there isn't any arms dealer outside of Sony or whatever, yeah. it becomes exactly about that. It becomes an internal PNL, reduce costs, increase revenue for what I have, and then compete on the things that are not content. Right. And <laughs> if Amazon UX and HBO's UX and Disney's issues with their streaming services, any indication, they're not there yet. I'm sure they know, but they are thinking about fixing it. They're not th somebody's thinking about it. We need to be thinking about the next version of these things and how 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 does that experience change so that everyone wants to be with me. And that is not going to be oh, I have a watch party feature that I can watch at the same no. time. <laughs> it's not going to be any of this flashy pandemic stuff that people have been playing with. It is going to be more like what Netflix is great at beyond their content play, which they do have a best-in-class interface, they have best-in-class mm -hmm. apps, and they have best-in-class streaming and, and CDN capabilities. Mm -hmm. That makes it so that as much as we are often bearish on their content play, I'm incredibly bullish on their tech stack and think it is world-class, and they are probably the only company that's there right now at a place where I think they're competitive in, in a way far and beyond anyone else. And they're also one of the ones that are willing to try even different, con like the Black Mirror and yeah. uh, Ellie Schmidt. Ellie Schmidt? Kelly Schmidt? Kimmy Schmidt. You can find Ellie Kim Kemper oh with God, Kimmy Schmidt. Oh my God, what is happening? <laughs> Kimmy Schmidt, stuff of like create your own adventure. Or, or again, yeah. Let's assume content is a commodity and everyone has great content. Because to your point, everyone is going to prefer one a little bit more than the other just based on the content. How do you convince them with other things? Sports is going to be, sports life mm -hmm. is going to be one. But outside of content, yeah, I like that. Being very good at discovery, very good at targeting, being very good at never failing. Yeah, this HBO Max thing yesterday was a, was an issue for HBO Max. They continue to suffer. It was not a great look to have your most anticipated finale all of a sudden just not work. Not great. Do you have an AUA for me this week? Yes, and it's actually an AUA that is connected to something we talked about a couple of months ago, the movies that I watched on the plane. <laughs> that I watched like Sonic and I watched Moneyball uh -huh. and I saw some. So yesterday, I flew, two days ago, I flew to Mexico. And I watched probably what now I think is my favorite TV, uh, plane movie, which is The Martian. Fair. Like I just see it and I see a lot of things and I'm like, this is great. It's easy to go, easy to follow. Well executed, Matt Damon is great, funny, lighthearted, a little bit of action. What's your favorite plane movie? It can be a specific movie or just like a genre that whenever you sit down, you're like, I want to watch a type of movie like this, if you have one. It's a great question. I watch films I'm very familiar with on planes typically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, partially because these are things that I have downloaded to my phone because I have a digital copy on. <laughs> okay, then no iTunes, not like me. You know, <laughs> let's say let's say you don't. You only have access yeah. to like the screen in front of you and the hundred movies that there are. Okay, there. so you're you're telling me to I'm picking a movie on a plane that is Correct. not something I brought with me. Yes, yes, okay. yes. I should have said that. Great. I should have been clear. The two genres I go for are definitely dumb fun action movie that I haven't made time for that I want to see mm -hmm. 
that's I watched one of the best plane viewing experiences I had was I was on a plane to France and I watched Captain America and the Winter Soldier like a mm-hmm. year after it came out. It was a perfect mm-hmm. plane movie. I was like, wow, this has more heft than I expected it to. This is great. Perfect. Exactly what I mm-hmm. want to watch. And then I find that licensing on planes, you end up with some weird old like library stuff, like old prestige stuff. So... I often find myself watching like a best picture nominee from 1987 that I want to like, I've been meaning to watch or something that's weirdly on this plane. I watch that sort of thing where it's like, eh. the library is so strange on this plane that it has this old movie that I've never seen. Might as well watch it. Those are my two genres. It would be an interesting job being a airplane programmer for movies. I've seen in my job hunt over the last year, I've definitely saw some jobs that were like, airplane licensing or negotiations and you had to have experience in that as well i was like who who's having this very specific experience and where does one start in this industry exactly how many airlines are there in the world let's say let's say 70 there are exactly 70 people that do in the whole world that do licensing for i think we joked about this that this a few weeks ago but it would be funny if like delta bought lionsgate or something Going back to the, the 80s and, and how these things were all owned. It's an awesome streaming service. It gets you from Atlanta to New York. Do you have an AUA for me? I do. This is kind of like last week where I just am breaking the definition of what an AUA is. Last week I asked you a, if you knew a fact. It was a trivia question. Okay. Yes. Th- this week, I need your help deciding something for me. Okay. What to have for dinner? No. No, very similar sort of vibe, okay. though. So as part of our hiatus, like one of the things is Alex and I are taking a quick honeymoon trip, and we are going to be in a situation where there are two movies that have a rep screening that I'm trying to decide between so I can plan my weekend around them. Oh, okay. So should I see the 1978 Richard Donner Superman on a big screen? Or Raiders okay. of the Lost Ark. Let me talk to you more, more about context. This. Exactly. Give me more context yeah. of what you've seen of these movies. Where have you seen them? I've seen both of these films. I've never seen either in a theater. Raiders okay. is a perfect film. It is a great film. It's insanely watchable. Amazing John Williams score. And I've seen it a dozen times. Alex has seen it. Alex loves it too, even though she's a little more skittish on spielberg as which is understandable and then superman is something i really hadn't sat down and watched until about six weeks ago loved it like incredible film alex has never seen it it's definitely kind of cornier and based on this very like it's kind of hokey in its own way but hackman's great i love the i I love the clark performance and the lois lane performance i just it's I think a more interesting movie, but a less good movie, if that makes sense. And it's also one where it's like, I don't know if Alex will enjoy it as much as she, I know she enjoys Raiders. It also has maybe the better John Williams score, which I think is a hot take. Hot take, yeah. So, so essentially, should I go for the thing that I know is a surefire slam dunk success that I've never seen in a theater? Or should I go for the thing that I kind of appreciate a little bit more that my wife might not like as much? It's a regular theater. Anything special with a the theater? Just a... It's a 
a, a nice big rap theater. Okay, I'm biased, but I think I would do Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. First, because it's one of those movies that I, I would love to watch in a big theater. Mm-hmm. Like, I would love to watch. It's similar to like The Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. I know that actually plays very often on... I haven't watched. I would love to watch that one. I think also the fact that it's kind of your wedding, uh, you know, weekend or week, does add more risk to the Alex not liking Superman. Agreed. If this was a regular Tuesday a year from now, I might be different. But I think even if even if she's like she would also like it, blah blah blah. I feel like Raiders this is very personal. I'm again biased, objective, but you ask me. It's one of those movies that you kind of have to watch, I would guess, in a big take take advantage of that. I, I guess on the se- oh, think agree with this. It's it's difficult. Damn it. Yeah, because now I would imagine that Raiders is more likely to play again in a big... That's the thing, too. Oh, man. The Donner Superman is popular, but it's not as popular as Raiders. I think then the... the, Actually, it's coming down to the risk of Alex not not liking it. I feel like that's the only thing that's tipping me towards Raiders now. All things considered. Which I think is important. I don't want to play it. And you know what? I did just have the hot take that I think the Superman score is better, but I forgot about Marion's theme from Raiders, which is maybe my favorite John Williams cue. So back to Raiders on the score. I, I think it's going to be Raiders. It's going to be a, I think, game time decision when I buy the tickets, but it'll probably be Raiders. I will let you know the next time we'd record a full episode, which one I choose. Yes. Perfect. Watch, it'll be neither. I just went and saw In the Heights or something. <laughs> yeah, it might be the next time we talk media, we talk in person. Maybe. We will see. We need to do like at least 10 minutes. We'll find some time. Cool. Well, I think that's it, right? It was great. It was. It's... Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Tell your friends about us. Follow us at StuckInDevPod on Twitter and Instagram. And we will see you in anywhere from a week to three weeks, depending <laughs> yes. on scheduling. But we will be back, I promise you. Much like James Bond will return, Carl and Aton will return. <laughs> yes, we'll see you in the future. See you then, everyone. Bye. <laughs>